Welcome to the Suzanne Venker Show, where you hear hard-hitting truths the culture hides. Find out more at SuzanneVenker.com. This episode of the Suzanne Venker Show is brought to you by Hair Saloon for Men. Hair Saloon is filling a void in American life that has as much to do with the restoration of men as it does with the business of haircutting. It's a place where men can still be men. At Hair Saloon, the TVs are always tuned into sports and never to Oprah. So head on over to HairSaloon.com. They have 18 locations in St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Boston, and Houston. Book online or through their mobile app. Again, that's HairSaloon.com for men against the grain. When was the last time you heard the media support or even acknowledge the fact that mothers are critically important to children in the early years? This is something that used to be understood by most Americans but has been ignored for decades. Fortunately, in recent years, brain research has proven what people in the past instinctively knew to be true, that women bring something unique to the table when it comes to caring for children. My guest today is Erica Komisar, a Manhattan psychoanalyst and a fierce advocate for the importance of mothers in the early years of a child's life. Erica has been in private practice for 25 years and is best known in the media for her recent book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Based on more than two decades of clinical work and breakthrough neurobiological research on caregiving, attachments, and brain development, Erica's book challenges myths regarding infant resiliency, as well as the idea that parents can both work full-time and year-round and still meet their baby's needs. We'll also talk with Erica about the pushback she's gotten in the media for writing this bold and important book. Erica joins us now from New York. Good afternoon, Erica. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the program. I'm so excited to talk with you. I may or may not have told you in the past that I have about three pages worth of pull quotes from your book that I wrote down the moment I read it when it first came out. That's how excited I was. I don't do that for for most books, but I did for yours. And I'd love to be able to go through all of them, which of course I can't, but I pulled out one that I think encapsulates what I believe your ultimate message is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. You wrote, we have a values dilemma in the United States. We focus on giving our children things rather than our time, attention, and engagement. We don't want to recognize that raising healthy children requires putting their needs ahead of our own for a time. We want to do everything quickly. We want to eat quickly, run quickly, talk quickly, and we want our children to separate from us quickly. We are so impatient to return to our quote-unquote real lives, the one before our children, that we often sacrifice our kids' emotional and mental health in the process. Erica, could you tell my listeners your story about the connection that you made or the theme that you, you were seeing in your private practice that led you to the conclusions that you've come to in this book? Yeah, you know, I, I was seeing an epidemic level of emotionally troubled children um, with serious symptoms in my parent guidance practice. Um, and those symptoms included things like ADHD, behavioral problems, early signs of aggression, depression, anxiety. Um, and it was starting at a younger and younger age, uh, meaning children were being diagnosed and medicated at such an early age that it became very concerning to me in my practice. So I started looking at um, the research, the neuroscience research, the epigenetics research, the attachment research, and all of the psychoanalytic literature that's part of my profession 
Um, and I did that for about 13 years before I wrote this book. So I basically collected all the research, all the really critical and new research, um, and really felt it was something that no one was really saying and that needed to be said. And can you explain the ways in which women, from a biological standpoint, are unique to children in those early years? I know you've talked about the oxytocin, cortisol, that kind of thing. Can you tell our listeners what that is all about? So the first three years of a child's life, what we consider the first thousand days, is is a critical window of brain development. And it's, it's a period of brain development which, by the end of that three-year period, 85% of the right brain or social-emotional brain of a child is developed. And that part of the brain is responsible for things like emotional security, for resilience to stress, for the ability to regulate emotions throughout life, um, and as well as things like empathy and the ability to read social cues and get along socially uh, in life. So that part of the brain is a really critical part of the brain. Um, and it's developed in the first three years through the interaction with the mother. And mothers, I found through all the research that I did, um, were not just emotionally necessary to children in those first three years, but were biologically necessary to children in terms of their brain development. So what do mothers do? From moment to moment, mothers soothe their infants and toddlers. And that soothing um, is a way to regulate a child's emotions from moment to moment, keeping their emotions from going too high or too low. It's only after a three-year period that that child internalizes the ability to regulate their own emotions. So what we're seeing is this epidemic both in children, adolescents, and adults, by the way, of people not being able to regulate emotions. So anxiety and depression are both disorders of the inability to regulate your emotions. Um, and also mothers do this other critical thing for children biologically, which is they buffer them from stress from moment to moment. They protect them from too much stress, particularly in the first year. Um, and by doing that, after a three-year period of buffering those children from stress, or at least um, sort of regulating the stress for them as they go into toddlerhood, um, at the end of that three-year period, children develop resilience to stress or the ability to cope with more stress. We are not born resilient to stress. We are not born with the ability to regulate our emotions. We learn it from the closeness with our mothers and the protection of our mothers in the first three years. So mothers are not just um, emotionally necessary, which we always knew. They are also biologically necessary to children's development. You know, Eric, I had a conversation the other day with a gal who was explaining uh, about this couple that she knew that she stayed with recently who have several children under five and they both work full-time and year-round and they're just literally never home and this family these parents believe and has told this friend of mine that um oh you know babies at this age they don't need much except to just be fed and and um bathed essentially that kind of thing and i that to me is i really feel like from my vantage point that this information if people understood more what you're talking about, they would um, make arrangements to meet those needs. Do you agree with that? I do, for the most part. I think people um, don't look at their babies. I mean, I yeah. think if you look at a baby, 
and you've gotten enough, um, and, I, and I say this um, earnestly, if you've gotten enough in your own childhood from your mother or primary caregiver or whoever nurtured you, then you've been given the empathy and the tools to be empathic towards your child. I think what's happening is generationally we're passing down um, impairment of empathy, which is that if you haven't gotten enough, you cannot look at your baby and see the pain in your baby's eyes. In fact, you can't see the pain at all. Um, and it's far too painful to look at the pain of your baby um, because it reminds you of your own pain. So we say that these disorders that we're seeing are also generationally passed down. So yes, if people could look at their babies and be empathic, I mean, people often ask me, what, what role have you taken on? What is it you hope to accomplish? And I would say the big picture is I would hope that people are more empathic towards their infants and toddlers, that they're more empathic towards their children, that they can look at their children and see when their children are in pain. I mean, children are individuals like adults, and so they have varying levels of what causes them pain and how much they can tolerate. But to be able to look at your child, be empathic, and understand their pain is a gift to give to your child. So I'm thinking of, I don't know if it was in your book or an interview or something where you talked about how when you work with people, this is fascinating, to get them to see this, you've, you've basically had to talk with them about their own upbringing, correct? And their own views of mothering and what they got from it themselves and what's holding them back in embracing these early years, yes? Always, always, because you can't really treat... Um, well, you can't treat a child for sure, but you can't treat a family unless you treat the individual parents, unless you really address the emotional needs of the parents and you first have empathy for the parents and what they may have gone through. That's the only way you can get through to that parent um, to be more empathic towards their child. It's such a fascinating way to look at it and it makes so much sense and that it's, I, and I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about it in this way. And yet, I guess that's what you do one-on-one -on -one with your practice, um, which we can talk more about. I need to, to go to a break. And when we come back, I'd love to hear about what you have to say about father's involvement in those early years and how it works in conjunction with mothers. I think that's also really important to know. You're a man that respects quality over quantity. You value relationships that can stand the test of time. You enjoy convenience without sacrificing comfort. At Hair Saloon for Men, we get it. We are restoring the time-honored tradition of delivering a haircut experience men across all generations can depend on. Because sometimes the man everyone depends on needs a place of his own to depend on. The experience goes well beyond the haircut. With every perfect haircut service, you receive a complimentary beverage a relaxing shampoo, a hot towel and mint for the perfect finish, and remember to take advantage of the complimentary shoe shines. While today's world is filled with numerous clip joints and fancy salons, Hair Saloon is building something better, something different. Book appointments online 24-7, and walk-ins are always welcome. Hair Saloon, for men against the grain. Visit hairsaloon.com to find a saloon in your neighborhood or for franchising opportunities. That's hairsaloon.com.
Welcome back to the Suzanne Venker Show. You can find out more at SuzanneVenker.com. This program is brought to you by Hair Saloon for Men, for men against the grain. Visit HairSaloon.com. We're talking today with Erica Komisar, a Manhattan psychoanalyst and author of the book Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And now I'd like to switch over and talk a little bit about the importance of fathers in their early years and how that works in conjunction with with mothers. Fathers are critical to children's development as well as mothers, but they're critical in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that um, may be a politically incorrect thing to say, that fathers and mothers... um, are equal in so many ways, but we can be equal in intelligence and equal in abilities, but also be different in certain ways. And mothers and fathers are biologically different in terms of nurturing. Um, And it's based on hormones. Um, Mothers produce something called oxytocin when they nurture. It produces a kind of sensitive, empathic behavior in mothers, meaning mothers will lean into children's pain when children are in pain or distress, particularly around things like sadness and fear. Um, and fathers will produce some oxytocin too, particularly if they you know, are stay-at-home fathers now. We're finding more fathers are producing oxytocin. Funny enough, it comes from a different part of their brain and it produces a different behavior in fathers. Um, fathers, when their oxytocin is flowing, which is the, kind of the love hormone uh, or the connection hormone, um, it makes fathers' behavior more what we call playfully stimulating, tactile stimulation, tickling their children, throwing their babies up in the air, um, roughhousing with them, doing physical play. And fathers encourage more exploration and separation. So that role is also quite critical to children because you have to have attachment to be healthy. You have to feel emotionally secure to an attachment figure, but you also have to have someone that says, come on in the swimming pool. The water's fine. You know, come over here, you know, come away from your mother. Let's go play. And so fathers serve this wonderful function because their hormones tell them to of um, kind of encouraging exploration and taking risks and things that children need for separation. Um, Fathers also produce something called vasopressin, a neurotransmitter, another hormone, which makes fathers more protectively aggressive um, with their children, which is also quite a good thing. Um, So, you know, mothers and fathers uh, are both critical, but they're not critical in the same way. They're actually both important. Um, So it brings up the issue of, you know, when we have couples where, you know, they're single sex couples, what, what happens? And I think the idea is that it, it's important that at least one parent take on the role of being the attachment figure and the other the role of the separation figure. Um, and in these times, these changing times, um, yeah, to understand that there are critical differences between mothers and fathers. Well, I, I absolutely couldn't agree more. And I, I remember you're talking about um, self-esteem in one of your interviews Uh I don't know if you were referring specifically to fathers there, but you had said something about that that direct involvement with the babies or ch- small children lets them know that they're interested, that they're interesting as individuals and worthy of someone spending their time with. And I think that's one of those overlooked things in our current culture and the way we 
parent or don't parent, as the case may be, um, that people aren't understanding that babies and toddlers aren't getting from a very young age is this idea that they're valuable and worthy of our time and attention. Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, fathers and mothers offer that in terms of showing interest in their children above everything else. Um, I mean, I did want to say one more thing about fathers, um, which is that, you know, they they model for children um, regulation of aggression. Remember, I said that mothers are very important to children in terms of regulating things like fear and sadness and distress. Fathers are critical in terms of regulating aggression. So what we're finding is this kind of surge of little boys who can't control their behavior, um, who are very aggressive. Uh, Girls too, but primarily we're seeing it more in boys um, because fathers aren't around enough for those Mm. boys. So so fathers model and help to teach children to regulate aggression. Um, So yes, in terms of self-esteem, in terms of showing interest, in terms of regulating aggression, fathers are really important and so are mothers. Yeah, and that's almost a whole other conversation about what's happening with our boys today. That's that's a definite um, segment right there. It's 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 tragic. Uh, the importance of fathers, that is. And anyway, that's that's for another time. But so you, when you talk about this attention, something that's very um, big today, of course, and very topical is this this idea of having no distractions and what technology has done to these early years, not just the first three years, but really just, you know, all the young years of a child's life. When I, when I had kids, when I was home with my kids, when they were much younger, they're 19 and 16 now, there just wasn't, there were no phones. So the first 10 years of their, our lives together, it was a non-issue. I just can't imagine dealing with phones and texting and all the rest with them as toddlers or babies. It's just mind boggling to think about. Do you come across this in your, um, your work with parents and and, and having to help them figure that out? I do. Um, You know, I think that technology has done wonderful things for society and for individuals, but in terms of parenting and child rearing, um, it's been disastrous. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, essentially, um, I think many adults are addicted to their phones and computers. And, you know, I always challenge parents that I treat to um, leave their computers and their iPads and their phones in the basket when they come in the door (laughs) and leave them there until their children are asleep and see how difficult that is. And on weekends, um, if, you know, if they're not critically working on something for their employment, to put their phones and computers and technology away. Um, and it's, it's really a litmus test because it's very, very hard for adults to do. Um, but if, if you can't do that, then you can't really tune into your child. Multitasking no is question. actually not good for the brain. <laughs> no. You're not good for it's not good for individual adults, and it's also terrible in terms of it erodes the connection between children and parents. Hugely, I mean, it's a myth. The whole multitasking concept is a myth. I mean, you can maybe uh, uh, talk on the phone and do the dishes at the same time, but that's that's about, that's about it. Anything that takes you know that requires attention is um, another matter. I would say quality time uh, and multitasking are two societal myths, um, but both of which should be debunked. Um, 
Have you focused? I mean, I, I completely agree, and I, I hate the whole concept of quality time because it isn't true. Children and babies in particular, but children overall, need loads and loads and loads and loads of quantity time. Um, have you had to discuss that when you were while you're marketing your book at all? Has that come up? I, I mean, I do because I think it's been our rationalization as a society um, for two parents working intensely um, although sometimes needed financially, um, it's become a rationalization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes parents cannot help having to have a two, uh, working parent family, um, for financial reasons. But even if you can't help it, you still need to acknowledge the pain that it causes your child. So society's problem right now is that we <laughs> deny and ignore the pain that it causes. And that's really, um, that's really damaging for children. I could not agree more. In fact, there's here's just one little example. Um, although I wouldn't know that this is much as a, a myth that's spread, but a belief that people have. You've heard mothers talk about um, being very excited if they find on-site daycare at their place of work, or if they work really close to home and they can come in and out and feed their children and go back to work and that kind of a thing. And they think that's something that's good, but in fact, it's harming their children when they do that, which I think would be really shocking for them to hear. Can you explain why that is? Well, I mean, I think parents, adults, adultamorphize children, meaning they um, project onto children adult-like resilience. So again, just to highlight the fragility of infants and toddlers, that they um, are very neurologically fragile, very, very fearful of everything Um, all kinds of stimulation. Um, And so that means that it's actually the connection to you, both physical and emotional. I mean, in other parts of the world, mothers carry their babies on their bodies for the first year to buffer them from stress. Mm -hmm. And as a result, babies in other parts of the world don't cry nearly as much as babies in the Western world cry or are in distress because they're immediately soothed by the mother's body. So to understand that a baby is literally physically, neurologically, and emotionally regulated by the mother's body, um, I think if most parents could tune into that pain, they would not leave their babies in those settings. Well, I'd like to pick up on that one. I have to go out to a break real quick, but I definitely want to pick right back up where we left off there in one minute. Are you unhappily single? Does your marriage or relationship feel hard? I get a lot of emails from readers who are struggling in their marriage or relationship. Unfortunately, the help an individual or couple needs can rarely be answered in a series of emails. For this reason, I offer relationship coaching for those who are struggling to find love and for couples whose marriage or relationship feels stuck in a negative cycle. Go to SuzanneBanker.com and sign up today for a coaching session with me and learn the tools you need to find love and sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneBanker.com. Welcome back to The Suzanne Venker Show. You can find out more at SuzanneVenker.com. This program is brought to you by Hair Saloon for Men, for men against the grain. Visit HairSaloon.com. We're talking today with Erica Komisar, a Manhattan psychoanalyst and author of the book Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And when we left before break, we were talking about what it does to babies when they leave or are separated from their mothers. And I want to talk about a little bit more about daycare because I don't think we've really we've really done that. And so you talked you were talking before we left about 
what happens when a baby is crying for his mother to essentially not leave him, that so many mothers who drop their children off in daycare know and can relate to and have experienced. And the culture essentially tells them to separate and not worry about that, that that's normal. When in fact, every fiber in their being is saying, this doesn't feel normal. You know, my baby is calling out for me. Why? And to understand that there will come a time when that child won't do this, but he's not ready yet. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, and I, I, I can't overstate it enough that their brains are so susceptible to stress and distress um, that you really, there's a small part of the brain called the amygdala, a little almond-shaped part of the brain that is responsible for the regulation of stress in the limbic system, the part of the brain that, that is responsible for stress regulation. And it's actually not supposed to come online for the first year. It's supposed to stay very small and diminutive for the first year. Um, what we're finding with mothers leaving their babies in these group settings and going back to work very, very early um, and leaving babies with strangers is that that part of the brain is coming online very early. And the problem with that is when that part of the brain is turned on too early, it kind of gets larger and inflates, um, becomes overactive. And, and that's a problem because when it gets overactive too early, not only does it lead to things like anxiety and depression, but that part of the brain will shrivel up and become non-functional in the future when that child needs to be able to cope with and regulate stress in the future. Um, so yes, we have a problem in that you know, there is a societal trend to believe that daycare is even good for children, um, that group care situations under the age of three are good for children. So let me um, debunk that myth right now and say that a child under the age of three does not need to be in a group care situation. It causes them emotional and physical distress. Um, it is, uh, th there is no, no good that can come from being left in a group care situation. If you must work, the best care is, um, if you can't be there, is what we call single surrogate care. One person who's like an alternative attachment figure to that child, whether it be a grandmother or an aunt or a babysitter who is mm -hmm and consistent. Um, the next best thing, if you can't afford that, is to share a caregiver with a neighbor or a good friend. Um, because the ratios in daycare are um, usually no less than five to one. How can you emotionally regulate and buffer children from stress that are so tiny and fragile when you have five of them? So I always challenge mothers to say, if you had five children <laughs> under the age of... That's good. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Both buffer yeah. from stress yeah. and regulate and soothe from moment to moment. Yeah. Be able to do it. And every mother that comes in with her eyes wide open says, of course not. And then I say, well, that's what you just left your baby in a group setting where one person is caring for between five and eight babies. I mean, does that does that do it? Do they get it? Does the light bulb go off? It seems like it would. Sometimes, because again, that empathic impairment also implies to not empathizing with the caregiver that they've left their baby with. So they don't yeah. then look at that caregiver and say, oh my gosh, how can that caregiver do it if I couldn't do it? Mm. Right? Interesting. Yeah. 
So, but the but the idea is that yeah, group care situations are um, are not good for children under the age of three. And I think there's also been a push in this country to push children into quote unquote nursery school or preschool. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Younger and younger out of convenience mm-hmm. to working families. Absolutely. Not to the benefit of children emotionally or developmentally. And, um, you, and you know we're going to be hearing about this next year, and not to get too political. I know I don't think either one of us like to get too political, but we're not going to be able to help it next year. I hope you write a lot <laughs> next year because we're going to be hearing about universal daycare left and right. And it's presented, as you say, as school when it's not school at all. No. It is not school. And what it, what it is going to do is it's going to push cognitive development at a very young age, left brain cognitive development, um, which is highly reliant on right brain development first. So meaning to have healthy cognitive development, you need to first have a foundation and base of social emotional development. What's happening is these children are being pushed to be cognitively advanced before they have the social emotional development and emotional security as a foundation so to learn we need to feel um, emotionally secure to learn there's frustration and to be able to tolerate frustration you have to have that social emotional development under you absolutely okay this is such great information erica and when we come back i want to talk to you about um, the the mainstream media's reception to your book. I know that you um, have talked a little bit about that, and it's it, it's I want to talk about it. <laughs> so when we come back, we'll do that. Do you ever wonder what happened to courtship and find yourself longing to go out on a real date? Do you ask yourself why some marriages last and others fall apart? Is your marriage struggling despite your best efforts to keep it together? Women who win at love don't have a gift you don't have. What makes them unique is that they aren't at war with the men in their lives. Rather than take a competitive approach to relationships, as the culture teaches, they accept that men are men and that women are women. And that makes all the difference. Whether you're single and mapping out your life, or you're divorced or unhappily married, women who win at love will permanently alter the way you view men in marriage. You will learn the eight dating rules that lead to marriage, why super successful women struggle in love, what men want and what women want, hint, they're not the same, why love alone is not a reason to get married, how to avoid the green grass syndrome, and why acting like a man lands women in a ditch. Women Who Win at Love is an in-depth examination of modern dating and marriage and a wake-up call for women at every stage of life. So go to Amazon.com and type in Women Who Win at Love and get ready for your life to change. Welcome back to the Suzanne Venker Show. And of course, this show would not exist without the good folks over at Hair Saloon for Men, a business that's filling a void in American life that has as much to do with the restoration of men as it does with haircutting. And twice a month, President and CEO of Hair Saloon, Tom Twellman, graces us with us presence here in the studio to talk about the issues we cover here on the program, issues that are as dear to him as they are to me. So welcome to the studio, Tom. Thanks, Suzanne. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. And just so the folks know, Tom's been listening in to the interview with Erica Komisar, so he's um, familiarized himself with what we've been talking about. And um, certainly, <laughs> I'm sure he could relate very, very much. Um, he is the father of, remind me again. Eight. Eight, okay. <laughs> I was going to say eight, but I didn't want to get it wrong. And he has a whole bunch of grandchildren. But let's get back to the eight, because as um, uh, parents of eight and his wife is obviously um, as he said in the past, he, he gives big credit to her for doing the lion's share of the, the work while he's doing a different kind of work. So 
what 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 are your thoughts about what you what you heard Ms. Commissar say? Oh, just very impressed with uh, the way you and Erica can can articulate your positions. I mean, I, I hope I can give it uh, you know some some credence. But uh, my wife and I, when we you know we started building our family, um, we we decided early on that uh, that the the mother needed to be at home. And, but we did it simply from our gut instincts, mm-hmm. you know, to listen to Erica talk about the, <laughs> the neuroscience research and everything behind it. I mean, uh, that's that's above my pay grade, but uh, definitely agree with uh, 100% with what uh, was discussed. And, um, you know, I think families, you know, they like, like Erica said and you said, there are some families that just feel like they have to work, or the mother has to work, but... To me, I think it, it, it's, there's a lot of factors involved there. I mean, I think the, the overburdening taxation that we're under, you know, affects the family. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> and I think families have to be willing to make sacrifices. You know, you don't, you know, if, if you're raising kids and to, you know, to, to hear how important the mother being in the home is that, that Erica and you guys talked about it is just amazing and um you know, if you, you have to make sacrifices. So you, you don't need that big home. You know, you maybe skip a few vacations or something. But, you know, those first three years, as, as you guys were talking about, is it's just amazing, you know, what's, what, what that affects. Well, it's funny how you said you, you just did it from instinct, which is how I opened the program saying that, you know, this was not controversial. This was not up for debate for, for, for eons. You know, and it's it's been lost in the last few decades because of, um, well, feminism, but that's a whole other conversation, I guess. And um, the push to get mothers out of the home and into the workforce as some sort of better life than um, the way, quote unquote, women had it before or what have you. And now we have this wonderful research um, to, to back up what you and your wife and, and many others have done naturally and instinctively. So that's so Im- it's so important if we're going to get back to some sort of middle ground and helping people understand how to structure their lives in advance. You said that you and your wife decided in advance. I, right. I couldn't agree more. I, the same thing with my husband and me. I talk about that in my books. You have to know and plan for that from day one. Don't get stuck later on trying to figure it out after the kids have come. That's not the time to do it. Yeah, you, you can't get that time back, you know, and, and uh, now we're, my wife and I are watching our, our kids, you know, we've got two new grandkids that are under two months old, you know, and my, all my daughters are stay-at-home moms. And and do you think that's because, how do you think that that, because there's so many parents who modeled one way and their kids went another way. What do you, what was different, do you think, in your situation? Anything? Man, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> we've just been blessed, I yeah. think, with with great kids and they've uh you know watched how we did it and i th- and i think they appreciate that yeah. and they're trying to do it themselves yeah that's so important um back a moment before we were talking about planning in advance um i think that doesn't get enough attention as far as understanding how you can manage on one income for a specified period of time now this wouldn't be necessarily for the entire 20 years or however long you have kids at home but if, if you make financial decisions ahead of time that don't require the two incomes, 
So, for example, if you sign on a home prior to having children that demands two incomes instead of one, well, then you are stuck. So then a few years later when they say, well, I have to work, technically they mean it, but they don't understand that the decisions start ahead of having the children. I cannot stress this enough. Do you agree with that? I agree with you 100 percent. You know, I think having, you know, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. So, you know, having my wife at home, you know, enabled me to do what I needed to do, you know, and it's less stress on the whole family and and I knew that when when I was at work, that my wife was taking care of the home. So, and she knew she didn't have to worry about making money while she was doing this other work. And that's well, there were some tight times. Though. Yeah, sure. Well, of course, of course. And then you have to accept that going in. But it's really about understanding, in my opinion, that it's a team, and that if you really look at it like one unit instead of worry about who's doing what all the time. I think that's really where the younger generation gets completely off base is this this, this competitiveness instead of understanding the complementary nature of the whole um, enterprise, if you will. Right. Well, you and Erica touched on it today, but I think in your previous uh, show with Dr. Laura, she mentioned that basically if when you drop your child off at daycare, that child is unloved for eight to ten hours. Yeah, I love how. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That just blew me away. Uh, that's a great, uh, great way that she puts it because you really can't argue with it, can you? I mean, she put it in a way that just makes people go, "Uh, well, yeah." I mean, you can't. That's true. That's true because no one's going to love your child like you. And then Erica explained it from a hormonal and neuroscience yes, perspective. So it's right, oh on, right on target. Oh my! Well, I'm so glad you came in today and got to hear it, and I will look forward to to. Um, Seeing you next time, talking with you. Sounds great. Excellent. Thanks, Tom. Hair Saloon. It's more than just a haircut. You walk in the door, tired, spent, looking a bit ragged. You're greeted by a warm welcome like you've been here before. A complimentary drink slides across the bar, quenching your thirst for comfort and convenience. The sound of clippers and conversation can be heard drowning out the noise of the world. You sit comfortably, surrounded in soft leather and smooth chrome. The smell of oak and clubman talc reconnects you to traditions your father and grandfather once knew. The soothing sounds of sharp metal trim away at your problems. Staying put in a comfortable barber chair, you lay back, resting your eyes as warm water and sweet mint soap washes away your worries. You recapture a few minutes to feel strong again, to look your best, and to get ready for what's next. And you're ready to repeat again a few weeks later. Hair Saloon, for men against the grain. Visit hairsaloon.com to find a location near you. That's hairsaloon.com. Welcome back to the Suzanne Venker Show. You can find out more at SuzanneVenker.com. This program is brought to you by Hair Saloon for Men, for men against the grain. Visit HairSaloon.com. We're talking today with Erica Komisar, a Manhattan psychoanalyst and author of the book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. So you wrote that you've been stonewalled by the media, despite making it clear that you wrote this book simply to help us create a more child-centric culture, which is wonderful. It's, it's not meant to be a political issue. It's really just meant to be a, an advocacy for children and for mothers. Um, but it turned into a political issue because I think it was a threatening idea. Mm-hmm. Um, threatening because the title implied that 
children meant you couldn't work. And yes. in fact, if you read my book, I don't say that at all. No, I don't. say that mm-hmm. some women have to work and some women um, have different choices than other women. But for the most part, um, it's not about working versus not working. It's about prioritizing children in those early years. And so the response to the book, I think, was one of um, women feeling guilty. Um, and, and as I say in the book, for me, guilt, as a psychoanalyst, guilt is not a terrible feeling. Oh, I love it's that. It's a signal I- feeling. It means that um, maybe it struck a chord in you. Maybe there's a conflict to look at, like pain, like physical pain is a signal feeling. If you have broken an arm or a leg, you don't keep walking on that ankle or that that leg you know you go in and get help with it so for some reason in society when we feel guilty um we we don't want to look at pain we want to turn away from it and we're told it's okay to turn away from it and in fact if you look at your guilt you find that you can resolve it either you make different choices in terms of being more present for your children physically and emotionally um, or you find better solutions for childcare. but in any case um, it's really um, I think the idea of my book threatened a lot of women and it did it did um, resonate a lot with a certain part of the population who really already believed in these values but it was very threatening yeah. um, to to people in the liberal media also remember that um, daycare was um, was part of the feminist agenda mm-hmm. now, I'm a working woman and I consider myself, quote unquote, a feminist in the sense that feminism is how you define it. I mean, for me, it's that women should have choices, um, but those choices shouldn't involve um, endangering the health or the emotional development of their children, but we should all have choices. And that choice might be not to have children, um, or that might, that choice might be, um, you know, if we, we can't care for our children, to get a really wonderful single surrogate caregiver. But yes, this book was very threatening to a lot of people. I'm so glad you brought that up about the um, the guilt because I forgot to ask you about that. And that, when I saw it, I thought this is a fantastic way of explaining um, and putting a positive spin on guilt and how you can actually get rid of it by facing it. I thought that was fabulous. So this has just been a great conversation, Erica. I'm so glad that you came on and spoke with us. As I say, I wish there were many more of you uh, out there. Where can people find out more about your work? First of all, thank you for having me on and, and giving airtime to these important ideas. Um, but they can reach me at www.comisar.com. The book is called being there, why prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters, and you can buy it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and um, yeah, and and please buy the book. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Erica. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you for having me on. It was great to talk to you. My guest today was Erica Komisar, a Manhattan psychoanalyst and parent coach who's a fierce advocate for the importance of mothers in the early years of a child's life. You can find out more at Erica. Commissar, that's K-O-M-I-S-A-R dot com. Well, that wraps up another edition of The Suzanne Venker Show. Don't forget to tune in next time when we talk with Joy Pullman, author and executive editor at The Federalist, about why the feminist life script makes women miserable. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, and please do take one minute to give us your review. And if you have a comment or question, email Suzanne at the Suzanne Show dot com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great weekend. 
Join me, Suzanne Venker, Saturdays at noon for The Suzanne Venker Show. Are you tired of the lies and the spin perpetuated in the media, in our universities, and in Hollywood? Does today's relentless gender propaganda make you feel as if you're going mad? If so, get ready to hear hard-hitting truths about men, women, sex, dating, marriage, and family that will make you cry out, yes, finally someone tells the truth. So join me, Suzanne Venker, Saturdays at noon for The Suzanne Venker Show, brought to you by Hair Saloon for Men, for men against the grain, online at hairsaloon.com.